Let's pray, and uh, we'll get started on our parable here. Heavenly Father, we are individuals that uh, all have to come uh, to you, uh, hopefully not by our own way, uh, but that we would come to you by the way that you've laid out. And as we look at this uh, parable this evening, may we take warning from it, uh, and uh, then also take delight in the fact that you're a God who saves those that the world would consider unsavable. And uh, so may we rejoice in this parable, but also uh, learn what you were trying to get across. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Matthew 21. I don't have much written down here as far as the background, but we do need to get the background to this parable. Last week we looked at the fact of Zacchaeus and that people thought it incredible that a man would change service. He would leave serving the Roman Empire, suddenly follow Christ, give everything uh, to the poor that he had, up to half of what he had. And, and that was an incredible thing. And there was this fervor that was going on because people realized Jesus was headed to Jerusalem. This is a major feast time. Jews three times a year had to show up in Jerusalem. This is one of the major feasts. And so Jesus is uh, going up the road from Jericho. He is going up to Jerusalem, which is a travel of about 17 miles to, to make uh, the journey. It's an incline uh, change of about uh, 3,500 feet, if I remember, because Jericho is below sea level. The uh, whole Dead Sea Valley is uh, in that uh, below, uh, in fact, the lowest place on earth. And you go to Jerusalem, and so there's this fervency that's just kind of building until Jesus shows up on a Sunday, and we know it as the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, it goes by different titles and the like, but Jesus comes and shows up, and the people are yelling, Hosanna, which means save right now saved now. Um, they're saying, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Um, the, you know, blessed is the son of David. I mean, all these titles that are indicating the fact that they're looking for him to be king. He's riding on a donkey, which is what kings ride on uh, back in those days. They're putting their coats out in the road. They're waving them. I mean, everything. And what Jesus does is that he comes in on an inspection tour. We sometimes miss this, that he just doesn't come in and, you know, take out all the money changers' table. He comes in and he leaves. If you read your Gospels and connect them, this is what happens. He actually comes back on Monday, enters into the temple, and begins to uh, knock over these tables that are there. And you say, well, what's going on with all of that? Well, Jesus was upset. You have this blank here. He entered the city in an inspection tour, found the temple in chaos. I mean, the, the, the temple, you go, it's a place of sacrifice. No, it's a place of worship. And that, that is not the main thing, though there is a sacrifice that are there. It was for the worship of God. And for individuals coming in, especially as you think about this, this is a major feast day. That's coming up, Passover, uh, with the seven-day uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread that follows after this. Um, 
This is a major occasion in Jerusalem. It's a major moneymaker for the priests specifically. Uh, Jerusalem at this time probably runs about 100,000 people, they think, maybe as far as a population, and they guesstimate uh, that they would reach a million people in Jerusalem. I mean, which you just imagine this, the footprint uh, of that area not really being able to contain that even today, if you look at that, uh, the area where the old city is at. But you'd have a million people show up that are all there for the Feast of the Passover, this was a big money-making time. And so with the priests, uh, what they would do is that uh, they were scoundrels, but what they would do is they would make money off of people. A, they would say, you need to change over your money into a temple uh, coinage, you know, and they would charge a rate for this and make money off of that as they would then say, you can then buy and sell. It's sort of like tokens, you know, in our culture, you know, you, you pay money for tokens and that's how you pay for things in different places that you may go to. Um, they were doing that. They were also with sacrifices that people were bringing, the animals that they were bringing, they were coming in and going, oh, no good. You need to buy one that's a good one. And we'll let you trade yours in and you know, pay a little bit more price and you'll get yourself a, a good animal here. And then what they were doing is right after that, as the people walked away, they would bring that animal that they had just declined and took in the trade and they would sell this as a good animal. I mean, this is the type of thing that would go on. Uh, the priests being the richest people in town because they were making money off of all these sacrifices, the temple coinage, and the like. And so when you come in here, you've got the chaos of an open market going on. This is a place that's supposed to be a place to be a house of, as the Lord said, a house of prayer. The ability to be able to communicate with God. And he comes in and finds the chaos. He goes and he knocks over all of these things. The Monday there drives them out. He's healing different individuals and he leaves. And in the process of this, there's a miracle that takes place that's one of the, the weirder miracles of Christ. Because when you see miracles of Jesus, they're normally good things. You know, the benefit afterwards is better than what the people were before or whatever it was before. In my thinking, I, I can only think of two miracles where you had something where Jesus did and it was destructive. One was uh, when Jesus uh, releases the man that's possessed by a legion of demons, the maniac of Gadara. Uh, the spirits there, the evil spirits, enter into the swine, and you have uh, the swine that goes out and drowns itself. I remember a flock of 2,000 or something like that. I mean, it was a big, big uh, herd of swine. There's another miracle that is this one, the second one that Jesus does on Monday. He goes by a fig tree and sees it's got leaves and it suggests to him that there's fruit. And he goes up and there's no fruit. So the tree is giving a false sign. And what he does is he curses the fig tree. They leave. They probably go to Bethany, which is only a mile, a mile and a half away. They just walk there. They stay with probably Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. I mean, that's probably where they're at. That's the thought process. And they come back on Tuesday. They walk past this fig tree, and the disciples go, Lord, the, the fig tree you cursed is dead from the roots up. It wasn't just the leaves, you know, started to fade and whatever and look like it's fall. No, it, it was obviously dying from the roots up, and they were like, it, it's dead. 
And he gives an explanation of what this means because it's basically showing the rejection of a nation that should have fruit and is showing that but has no fruit. And then he comes into the temple. So what we have is that Jesus comes in and you have that blank there. On Tuesday, he entered the temple to teach. So you've had all of this excitement, crowds coming in for a festival. He is, uh, has a triumphant entry. He then on Monday knocks over all the tables. So he's coming in on Tuesday now. And you can imagine the religious leaders, not only the priests who are making all the money, understand that priests are different than Pharisees, but Together, we call them the religious leaders because many of them were part of the Sanhedrin that would make religious decisions. But they're going to be pretty mad, angry that Jesus had done this on the week where they're going to make the largest amount of profit that they're probably going to make because this is a long feast because it's not only the feast of the Passover. People stay for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which lasts seven days, and he's already stirred things up and they're losing money. And he's caused this in their mind, chaos. And so they're ready to come after him. And what we're going to have tonight and the next two Wednesday nights, we're going to look at three parables the Lord gives in response to them coming after him. This one uh, being the first one, the story that we're going to look at. And, And what they do is they come and have a question of authority. You have in your notes there, Jesus' cleansing of the temple was a direct assault against the religious rulers when large crowds were gathering for the Passover. They wanted Jesus to give an answer on who gave him authority. Okay, who gave you the authority? Who gave you, we might say, the right to do that? But who gave you the authority to both do and teach? And they're intentionally... Okay? It's in the midst of his teaching that they come up as a group and just start talking to him right in the middle of his teaching. And they're, they're talking to him about what authority he has. I just want us to, to read this part of it. It starts in verse 23, chapter 21. When he was coming to the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people, so you got the priests and the Pharisees, came unto him as he was watching and said, by what authority... Dost thou these things? Who gave thee this authority? Jesus answered and said unto them, I will also ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I and likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, whence was it, or where did it come from? From heaven or of men? And they reasoned within themselves, saying, If we shall say, From heaven... He will say unto us, why did ye not then believe him? But if we shall say, of men, we fear the people, for all hold John as a prophet. And they answered Jesus and said, we cannot tell thee, or we cannot tell. And he said unto them, neither tell I you by what authority I do these things. See, Jesus' response was to ask a question about authority. Okay, they ask him a question about authority, and he asks a question back. And this, this is a very, for, for the religious leaders, this would have been a familiar style, the style of um, teaching. The question upon question, and the question back and forth, and the, the questioning that goes back and forth. This was just part of the thing. So him asking a question in return was not something that took them completely by shock, but it's a good way to answer a question. 
And for him, he asked a question that if they believe that John the Baptist had his authority to baptize from heaven, or we could say from God, or from earthly authority. See, John, when he came, he was an unusual man. Three and a half years, uh, maybe four, if we're thinking through that John perhaps appeared six, six months before Jesus did. So at four years at this point, they're looking back on John the Baptist. He's already been executed, gone for two years at this point. But when John showed up, it was a unique experience. People from all over the region, you find it listed out, from Galilee, from Samaria, from Judea, from the eastern part of the Jordanian River Valley, uh, from Jerusalem. Everybody's flocking to see this man who's dressed weirdly, who's eating meals that most people would not want. He goes to an inconvenient location, one of the hottest places on earth and lowest places on earth. And he goes there and he starts preaching. And everybody shows up. And so Jesus is asking, okay, did he do that because he decided he was going to do that or he made up the idea, I'm going to go out there and gather a following by doing this or was he a messenger sent by God? Did he have authority to baptize and do all that he did? Was it something that God gave him, or was it something he came up with himself? And of course, they go through this, and they begin to understand that if they gave the expected answer, they would admit that John's message was something they should have obeyed. You know, if they say, oh yeah, it was from God, uh, okay, why didn't you pay attention to him? If they say the, the answer that they thought was right, they would cause a riot among the people who saw John as a prophet. Okay, this is how they saw him, a prophet from God. In fact, some of them think that he is the prophet that Moses said, you need to look for back in Deuteronomy 18. You're going to look for a prophet like me. Now, there was a reason that the Pharisees probably didn't like John the Baptist. We forget in the story that everybody's flocking out to see this man who's preaching and he's got all of this going on. And the Pharisees don't want to miss out because they want to be at the forefront of anything religious going on. They want to be seen. And when they show up as a group, what does John the Baptist call them? Calls them vipers. Oh, you brood of vipers. What are you doing here? Uh, He calls them snakes. That does not endear him to them. They were already questioning the fact of, you know, whether or not he was, you know, that they should follow him, and they didn't like his message of repentance because they didn't see themselves as needing repentance, but he's demanding that everybody repent. And for him to suddenly say, you generation of vipers, as they show up, you know, they're showing up to be seen, and, and he just, he calls them out right from the beginning. <clears throat> so they don't like John. They don't like his message. And so in their mind, they're just kind of going, oh, that's a, he was, you know, he just had a message that. But if they say that in the midst of this crowd, they would probably be torn to bits. 
Because you have crowds of people who are fervently looking for the kingdom to show up, and it's this. You, you, you side with somebody who's on the other side, you're, you're siding with the fact that he wasn't pronouncing the fact that there was a possibility of the kingdom coming, we need to be prepared for it. He wasn't from God. Who do you think you are? So this is what goes on. So they were religious leaders. Okay, the answer they gave was a lie, seeing they pled ignorance. We cannot tell. <laughs> we don't know what the answer is, which is a bold-faced lie because these are the people who always had answers for everything. I mean, these are individuals that spend their time in the synagogue going, Rabbi Hillel says this, Rabbi Shammai says this, we don't know what to say, you know, I mean, th- these are their opinions and this is their answers on these subjects, and they, they, they always had answers. Um, I mean, I, I think of it this way, and I, I'm humored by this uh, at times, uh, in the middle of Fiddler Roof, there's a question given to a, a rabbi, a Pharisee. Okay, modern-day Pharisee. And the question is this, is there a prayer for the czar? Now realize, as they're making this statement, the czar is the one who is persecuting them and making life difficult for them. But is there a prayer for the czar? And the rabbi hmm, sits there and he rubs his you know, beard and comes up with a prayer. Uh, um, May the Lord keep the czar far from us, uh, and the like. But he's got an answer. These are men that are sometimes called scribes. You go, why? Because they got all the laws down. They know them. They know all, you know, people come to them and go, hey, I got this situation. What's the answer? They would give them an answer. And in this case, they're going, you know, they're, they're speechless. They don't have an answer. And you're going, okay, this is a, 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 a anybody standing there would go, whoa, they don't have an answer for this. This is a first. And so the Lord responds, and he just says, well, since you're not going to answer, bottom of the page, they declared that if they would not answer, he didn't need to answer either. So that brings us to where the Lord starts with a series of parables that, interestingly enough, remember, parables are supposed to hide truth. You know, Pastor Brian and I had this discussion just recently about somebody that was like, yeah, parables make things clear. That's why the Lord gave them. He made everything clear. And you're going, uh-uh. Remember why he started telling parables? Because there were people that were saying, oh, he's doing things by the power of the devil. And that's why he went to start t- talking parables because he figured, why am I going to give them a message that they don't need to hear? I'm going to make a message that's a little bit difficult. You ask questions, you might get the answer, but I'm not going to give parables to make things easier. Well, in these cases, the Lord's parable, by the time he's done with them, they know it's about them. They've figured out the application in this case, the Lord's actually going to give them the application. A couple of the other ones he's not going to that we're going to look at in the week from now. He's not going to give the explanation. They're just going to figure it out. But in this case, he gives a parable. In the parable, you find this. It's a short parable. Verse 28 says this, but what think ye? Lord asks a question to start off here, and he says this. What do you think about this? A certain man had two sons, 
And he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. And he answered and said, I will not. But afterward he repented and went. And he came to the second and said likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir, and went not. Whether of them twain did the will of his father. They said unto him, the first. I mean, the parable, and I'm going to stop here for a second. He told the story of two sons. The first son was commanded by his father to go work immediately in the vineyard. That's the blank that's there. Uh, He says, today, you go out there and work today. He doesn't want to do it. He declared that he would not. However, afterwards, he repented and obeyed his father's command. I mean, there's no, no explanation why the change happened. You know, do you think about, you know, dad was being reasonable. Yeah, I probably need to be out working. Um, you know, dad shouldn't be doing that. Um, whatever he, you know, whatever thought process is, he just goes, you know, I shouldn't have said that. I'm just going to go out and do what my dad said. The second son, <clears throat> I kind of laugh at him because he reminds me of Eddie Haskell. You know, Eddie Haskell, who is he? Well, he's the leave it to beaver, and he's always the one that's around the boys, and he's like, yes, Mrs. Cleaver, no, Mr. Cleaver, yes, Mr. Cleaver. And he's always very fine, and he's always got the sirs and ma'ams down in front of them, and then afterwards he's like, you know, it's a front. Well, that's what it is here, because you look at him, he responds with, I go, sir. You know, aye, aye, sir. You know, I mean, he's, he's got it all down. And then after father goes away, nah, I'm not going to do that. And he doesn't do it. What you have is that the Jesus got the leaders to respond by asking the question of who was the obedient son, and they responded, the first son. I mean, I don't know that they, at this point they have any idea what he's about to get them in. But they at least answer this question because they don't know of any, you know, if we say this or this, you know, we'll be right or wrong. They're just going, okay, well, it's the first son. They answer this time. They got an answer. And the Lord's response, you find this in verse number uh, 30, excuse me, 31 in the middle. It says this, Jesus saith unto them, Verily, of a truth, this is real, real, real. this is not a deniable. Uh, verily, I say unto you that the publicans and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came unto you in the way of righteousness, and ye believed him not, but the publicans and the harlots believed him. And ye, when they had seen it, repented not afterward, that ye might believe on him. And Jesus takes the two sons, applies them to the group. The tax collectors and the prostitutes were like the first son. You say, what do, you, what do you mean by that? How, how were they like the first son? Well, it was obvious in their culture what God wanted. It's a thing called the Ten Commandments. I mean, everybody in their society would have known the Ten Commandments. And what the publicans, the tax collectors, and the prostitutes had figured, or were doing was openly rejecting what the Father said. One's openly stealing, 
The other ones openly committing adultery, breaking commands that are clearly in the Ten Commandments. They, they've received what God said to do, and they just go, nope, we're going to do something else. But it all changes when you have John the Baptist and the message of Jesus uh, come, and they're saying that they need to repent. And that's the blank that's there. When they heard the message of John the Baptist, Jesus repeating the message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand that they do this. They receive it with joy. They're happy about this. That they know that they were the ones that uh, were far from God, and they're suddenly going, we get a second chance. We take it. You know, we missed what God God the Father said the first time, but when God says it this time, we're going to repent and believe, and we're going to go out and follow the way of righteousness. That fourth paragraph is this. The religious leaders were like the second son, they paid lip service to God, but they did not uh, do what he commanded. The religious leaders were not going to make it into the kingdom of God because they had not listened to the way of righteousness. It's what he says. John came preaching the way of righteousness. See, they had their own righteousness. They had it figured out. And what John comes along and does, he's preaching the right way. You know, this is the right path. This is the one that's pleasing to God, that makes, makes God happy. It meets his standard of what you need to do. And he is giving you the way of righteousness, and they don't want it. And I do find it uh, interesting that when you talk about uh, Jesus, he describes himself in John 14. It's the same time uh, as this uh, event's taking place just a couple days later. He's telling his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Once you get to the book of Acts and you have the, the church being called the people of the way or the, the followers of the way or they're just the way. John, John is preaching. How do we approach God? How do you become part of the kingdom of heaven? What's the pathway? What's the way? Well, you need to repent and believe. I mean, he's preaching a message of repentance, and it's very little that you hear him say believe, but the intention, as the Lord says here, you need to repent and believe, which you have not done. Believe on the one who is going to come. The tax collectors and prostitutes were going to be in the kingdom of heaven because they had seen their sin, repented, and turned to the only one that could save them. But the Lord's final statement is, you're not going to make it. That would have been, for the people in the crowd, that would have been an incredible statement. But Jesus just comes out and says it. I mean, it, it, times before, it's been assumed, it's been hinted at, it's, you know, a parable form, whatever. The Lord just comes and says, you're not going to make it to the kingdom of heaven. You're not. And the crowd would have been shocked by that. Now, for us, this last paragraph, I think, is the, the really a good one for us to just simply consider because this is not a message that's in contrast to the rest of scripture i want you to turn back in your bibles to matthew chapter 7 matthew 5 6 and 7 this is the discourse of the sermon on the mount jesus is giving what it is to be part of his kingdom 
I mean, he gives his entry requirements right in the Beatitudes. These are people, if you want to be part of the kingdom, you're ones who have mourned over sin, you've sought after righteousness, uh, that you've received mercy from God. Uh, This is a person that's a part of the kingdom of heaven that will enjoy uh, being a part of this. And the rest of it's about what the citizens of the kingdom of heaven ought to look like, how they ought to act as representatives of this kingdom that they're a part of. But you get to the end of the message in Matthew chapter 7 and you start looking at Matthew 7 and verse number 21. He's closing up his sermon here. It's just before we get to the wise man and the foolish man story. People who listen to my word are like the wise man. People who don't are like the foolish man who builds his house in the sand. But just before that, he says this, verse 21. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Sounds very familiar to what we just had. The, the people that were tax collectors, publicans, they did the will, the Father. They accomplished this. They followed the way. Verse 22, many will say unto me in that day, what, the judgment day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? Then will I profess unto them, I never knew you, depart from me, ye that work iniquity. I mean, in that culture, who more often than anybody else had the title, or would be speaking forth the title, Lord, Lord? It would have been the Pharisees. They would have said this multiple times in the synagogue services, and they would have uh, let out in that, and they would have used this title, but they weren't following the Lord. It was mere, as we talked about earlier, lip service and ceremony, but not anything about the heart, nothing about the inside. They, they did a show for people to see and the Lord says, people who cry, Lord, Lord, are not guaranteed that will, they will be in, and you have this, so you can put the kingdom of God or the presence of God someday. Well, let's turn to another passage. Uh, this one, the book of James. James, the brother of Christ, the half-brother of Christ. makes a statement right at the beginning of his book uh, about uh, how we respond to what God says in his word. And verse 21, he says, lay apart all filthiness, superfluity, or overflow of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. He says, you need to with meekness, which means you're willing to put your abilities and talents underneath what the word of God says. And here it is, verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any man hear the word, or be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself, goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. See, the challenge there is that you need to be not only hearers, but doers. And the problem with many people is they think, okay, we've heard we're okay, and they're doing nothing with what they heard, and what are they doing? They're deceiving themselves, like the Pharisees. Now, I I will say this, who do we deceive the most? Like, well, maybe, you know, so-and-so and and -and so-and-so. No, no. You deceive yourself more than anybody else. You lie to yourself all the time. And these Pharisees had heard the word over and over and over again. They had been on the front row seats 
You know, they had, they'd gotten the best tickets. I mean, Jesus wasn't charging, but I mean, they would sit on the front rows to hear Jesus' teaching. Not because they wanted to, but everyone would go, oh, look, they're on the front row. And they would hear what Jesus said. They wouldn't do it. And you go, what were they doing? They were deceiving themselves. They thought they were something. They thought that they were making it, and they weren't because they weren't hearing with a hearing for a response. They were just merely sitting under what was said. So what you have is many people deceive themselves because they're hearers of the word, but not doers. That's what these Pharisees' problem is. They aren't hearing the message and doing. Or how about, and I'm not going to have you turn there, 1 Samuel 15, 22. This is the passage where Saul was told to wipe out the Amalekites. The Amalekites had made life difficult for the nation of Israel for, uh, to that point, about four to 500 years. They had made the, the exodus difficult for the nation of Israel. They were assaulting and attacking uh, those that were um, weak and sick in the back of the line stealing from them and the lord said i'll remember this and so then he commanded saul as the first king of israel you're going to go and wipe out the malachites you're going to wipe out everything that they have you're not going to save anything you're not going to do anything with that you're just going to destroy it and when samuel shows up he sees uh, or hears the bleeding of animals and sheep uh, and he hears sees the king that is there and he's going what are you doing and 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 Saul goes, oh, hey, you know what? We saved the best stuff for sacrifice. Now, I, I think probably it was a you know, spur-of-the-moment choice there that he made this up. We got the sheep. We can kind of disperse it and whatever and you know, walk away with this stuff. And Samuel goes, oh, well, what, do you, what do you got sheep with you at battle for? You, know, you don't take sheep to battle. Why am I hearing this? Oh, oh well, we saved the sheep for, for, uh, for, for ceremony, for sacrifice. And the response in 1 Samuel 15, 22 is, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken, listen, than the fat of rams. See, these men were ones that would uh, show off. And I have this, obedience is better than sacrifice. They did all sorts of ceremonies. They did all sorts of show. They did all sorts of stuff like that. But they weren't listening to what God said as far as their heart the prophets they ignored the prophets so to obey is better than sacrifice and you'll have this uh, statement uh is uh the lord will give to his disciples uh in the upper room in john chapter 15 in a passage that's talking about uh remaining in the vine uh finding your strength and your your help in that vine uh, being connected to that vine but the statement uh, to show that you're in the vine that you got life is this uh, john chapter 15 and verse 14 ye are my friends if you do whatsoever i command you you know if you if you do the things that i say well what's jesus been preaching all this time he's been preaching this repent and believe what i'm declaring about myself we sometimes forget as we read through our bible that our response to the gospel isn't sometimes called belief, it's sometimes called obedience. Romans likes this. Romans 1, and I think it's 15 too, also states the, the obedience of the gospel. It has that phrase there. You go, what do you mean the obedience of the gospel? It's this idea that you obeyed what the good news said. What's the good news? You need to repent and believe on the Son. 
And when you do that, what are you doing? You're obeying what God has been saying. You need to change your ways and your thinking about who you are and turn from those things and turn to the one who can save you, and that is called obedience. Well, here you have Pharisees that have heard for three years, three and a half years, hasn't done anything for them. They haven't obeyed the good news because they've got their own way of righteousness, their own path of righteousness. And the Lord says, you're not going to make it. Sorry, but you're not. And I'm stating it very clearly that there's not a second chance. You just aren't going to make it into the kingdom of heaven because you've failed to obey what you've been told. So this is the, the initial, I mean, this is, this is where the Lord starts opening up on the Pharisees because he gets to the point where he's not just telling parables. Read Matthew 23 and you find all sorts of woes about the Pharisees. And when you see the word woe, you stop and you go like you do with a horse, even though it's spelled differently. But you stop and you consider and you go, why is he saying woe? Because this person's under serious judgment. So whenever you see woe in the scripture, it's, it's for you to stop and go, whoa, this person's in, in not a state I want to be in, not in a condition I want to be in, not a place I want to be in. And the Lord goes after the Pharisees for a full chapter in Matthew 23 and just says, woe unto the Pharisees who are ones who go and they strain at a gnat. They'll circle a whole countryside to get one disciple and they've not made a disciple, they've made a person who is being sent to hell. You kind of go, so the Lord, the Lord was pretty strong with these individuals. He was. You say, well, people like that can't be saved. Okay, well, we forget about Saul. Saul was a Pharisee just like these men, sat at the feet of somebody else and learned their way, got their authority. He got his authority from Gamaliel because Gamaliel was his teacher and that's who he got his authority from uh, and he was seeking his own righteousness. He stated that. And he finally got saved. So it's not that the Lord was saying here for these men, there's no possibility, but he, he is firing the warnings. You're not, you're not in the kingdom of heaven. You think you are. You're not there. You're not even close. You're not going to make it. Others are. So that's, that's why this parable is told. And uh, it is the Lord's opening, opening volleys in a week that in the end the Pharisees think they're going to win. They have them crucified. <laughs> and what they didn't know is they were actually doing the very thing that God needed to be done, and that was the sacrifice of his son. And uh, so, yeah. So we'll, we'll be back in Matthew. We'll, we'll write passage right after this uh, for another parable. But he tells three parables, and they're all, when they're done, they know. They know he's been talking about them. Uh, yeah. So, you know, any questions? Didn't have too many this morning. It was, you know, it's pretty pretty straightforward one on this one. It comes to this parable.